The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome back Claire Bidwell-Smith. Claire is a therapist specializing in grief and the author of two books of nonfiction, The Rules of Inheritance and After This, When... After this, when life is over, where do we go? Both published by Penguin. The Rules of Inheritance, which Claire and I talked about in January 2014, is a coming-of-age memoir about grief and was a Books for a Better Life nominee and a Barnes & Noble Discover pick. It has been published in 17 countries and is currently being adapted for film. After this, chronicles Claire's journey as a grief therapist searching for meaning as she explores various beliefs about the afterlife. Claire has a bachelor's degree in creative writing from the New School University and a master's degree in clinical psychology from Antioch University. She teaches numerous workshops around the country and has written for various publications, including the Huffington Post, Salon.com, Slate, Chicago Public Radio, The Guardian, and Black Book Magazine. And Claire currently works in private practice in Los Angeles. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's really great to have you back. And first of all, I just want to thank you for writing this book after this. Oh. I was I could not put it down. And um, it, it just sort of opened up a, lo- a lot of things I've experienced. It, it, it caused me to re-experience some things. It mm-hmm. um, was kind of a relief to have a therapist writing about that issue. You know, just I, I just very much enjoyed it. Of course, well, that's what we'll be talking about. Um, I, I felt like you were bringing me along on your personal road of discovery, and I did feel that way with your first book as well. That I that I kind of got to grab your hand and and tag along. Thanks. Yeah, you know, um, I wanted it to be a personal journey. I, I feel like there's so many books out there. I'm so curious about the afterlife. I'm curious about psychology in general. I'm curious about the meaning of life, what makes us all work, why we're here. And there's so many books on these topics. But so often they're written by someone who's kind of unrelatable. You know, either they've had some transcendental experience that we have not had, or, you know, they're an authority in some way that we're not. And so we can read these these books on all these subjects, but we can't always step into them in the way that I wanted readers to be able to step into this one. Um, I'm, I am a therapist specializing in grief, but I'm also a regular person, and I'm a mom, and I'm a skeptic, and I'm curious, and I, I wanted this subject matter to be really accessible to readers. I think, I think there's a way that uh, your skepticism 
uh, actually especially pulled me in. Kind of that that mixed desire to be convinced, but also, uh, you know, kind of looking askance at um, something that rationally we can't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about those two things together that really captivated me. And um, it sounds as if that just came out of your own uh, your own relationship to the subject in some way. Would that be yeah, fair to say? Yeah, it came from an say? authentic place, definitely. Yeah, it came from an authentic place. I, um, I am pretty rational. I'm grounded, but I'm also really curious. And so I wanted to explore some of this stuff, psychic mediums and shamans and, you know, seances and all these kinds of things. But um, I, I also don't necessarily really believe in them. And But I'm curious enough to want to believe, maybe, or to, you know, to have someone at least try really hard to change my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was a it was an interesting viewpoint that I don't think has really been done very much, like the skeptic's viewpoint of this stuff. Either it's by someone who is a medium or who fully believes in it. And those were the books that were harder for me to to step into. Because it, it they for me anyway, and you can tell me if you agree, they they feel like an attempt to convince. Right. Uh not an attempt to share. Sometimes. Yeah, and I just I wanted I basically just wanted to kind of be a bridge for people who are curious as well. So you don't have to necessarily believe. You can maybe want to believe or just be curious and and kind of dabble in it in the way I did. Yeah. Um, do you feel as if it seemed to me you were in somewhat of a different place at the end than the beginning? Would you say that's true? Absolutely. It was about. I spent about five years researching this book. Um, so I had the idea for the book to just to kind of explore the afterlife in every way possible. Um, but a lot of kind of new agey spiritual paths opened up in my exploration. And I went into everything, as we've discussed, very skeptical. And I, I did have some, some real transformative experiences that um, definitely led to the end of the five-year journey of me being in a very different place and having a different viewpoint, not only of the world, but of my own sense of spirituality and my connection to people I've loved and lost. Mm. The other thing I think was particularly powerful for me about the book was I also read it as a kind of a legacy book for your children. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It, uh, it, you know, I think part of it was born out of, out of that. Part of the reason I wrote this book was after becoming a mother, uh, my first daughter was born a little over six years ago, and I had grappled with a lot of death anxiety in my early 20s after my parents died, and that had been really challenging and difficult for me. I came through it and moved into a new place, and I, wasn't, I was no longer experiencing this kind of existential anxiety that I had had following all the loss I went through. But then becoming a mother kind of put me back into that place. It, I just felt so incredibly vulnerable when I became mm. a mom with this little person who depended on me and whom I loved more than I'd loved anyone ever. And I suddenly, all these old fears and anxieties kind of resurfaced. And I thought, what, what is going to happen if she loses me or if I lose her? What will happen? Mm. And so I, that was what set me off on this journey um, to kind of find out a little more about what does happen when we, when we die and 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 along the way it was it ended up becoming a kind of legacy to them to my to my two daughters 
I'd love for you to share the part of your book about your children and the butterfly because um, they're they're so present in the book in a in a very um, endearing way. You know, I love your children now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, um, and and I'd like the I'd like the listeners to to hear a little bit of that. I think it's so present in that part of your book. Sure. Yeah. Um, this is from the preface and. Just to back it up a little bit, we um, I had I had for their birthdays their their birthdays are just a week apart. I had gotten them a butterfly kit, and these live caterpillars come in the mail, and you watch them spin cocoons and um, and then become butterflies. And so we had done this, and um, so I'll just start off there. The next morning when we wake up, only two of the butterflies are perched on the side of the net. I find the third one immobile at the bottom of the enclosure, obviously dead. I feel a great wave of remorse that this butterfly did not make it to our release day, never getting to experience what it would be like to fly into the sky. One of the butterflies died, I tell the girls, unable to hide the note of sadness from my voice. Oh no, Vera exclaims, what do we do with it? Well, I think we should first release the other two, and then we'll bury this one and have a little ceremony for it, I tell her. The girls nod at me with serious looks on their little faces, and I'm struck by how easily they absorb the ideas I offer them. Outside in the backyard, we open up the netted habitat and watch as the two live butterflies soar up into the bright blue California sky. We watch them until we can't see them anymore, and Jules dances about excitedly. Flying, Mama, she says over and over. They're flying. They are, sweetie, I say, smiling. Finally, I remove the third butterfly from the bottom of the enclosure, and I let the girls hold it gently in their palms, all of us marveling over its intricate beauty. Where should we put it, Mama? Vera asks. I think we should bury it over there, I say, pointing to a bush full of flowering white roses in the corner of the yard. Together, the three of us walk over to the bush and kneel down in the dirt. Jules holds the butterfly carefully while Vera digs a shallow grave with one of my salad-serving spoons. Gently, we place the butterfly in the soil, and then we cover it with fallen rose petals that we've collected. Let's all say a few words of thanks to the butterfly, I say, and we take hands, closing our eyes. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your life, butterfly, I say. I'm sorry that you didn't get to fly into the world, but we are so grateful that we got to see you transform from a caterpillar. Thank you, butterfly, Vera says. You were very pretty. Thanks, butterfly, Jules says quietly. Inside the house feels a little emptier. Butterfly died, Jules murmurs over and over again. I squat down in front of both girls, tugging at their hands, knowing that they are already shifting direction and ready to disappear into their room to play. The butterfly did die, I say to them, but remember how the butterfly was first a caterpillar? They nod at me, and then it went into its cocoon? They nod again. Well, now it's in the ground, which is like another cocoon, and it's going to go through another transformation. It will emerge into something else eventually, I explain. Like into another butterfly? Vera asks excitedly. Not exactly, but it will become part of the earth again, and its energy will go on to be something else, maybe a flower in the rose bush, or maybe something we can't even imagine. Is that what happens when we die? Vera asks. I think it is, I say. And either way, the love we have for the butterfly doesn't change. Just like when a person dies, that love we feel for them doesn't disappear, and neither does theirs for us. I still love the butterfly, Vera says, mirroring my statement. Love the butterfly, Jules mimics. Yes, we all love the butterfly, the one in the ground and the ones that flew up into the sky. That's what's important. I release my daughter's hands and they scamper off to play. I stand up and watch them from the doorway for a moment, thinking about how the only thing I really want them to understand about death is that it does not change love. 
that that particular section um, really brought back when when my partner died, my youngest child was two and a half. And so you really brought that time back. I felt she had such an easier time comprehending what was happening than the rest of us, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, it was very concrete. Uh, you know, we, similar to you, were very, um, very honest and direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we borrowed a stethoscope and listened to our hearts and talked about how when people die, their hearts don't beat anymore, their bodies don't, you know. And she accepted it as is, uh, sort mm-hmm. of completely. There wasn't any fear. That it was just a fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, y- you know, we would tell her we didn't know what really happened, but some people think you kind of have a guardian angel when someone you love dies. But she changed that to garden angel. Oh, I love that. I love <laughs> um, that. So, so when I was reading about the butterfly, the garden angel was... <laughs> present in my mind very much so I thank you for bringing that back to me Mm -hmm. I love that yeah I think children do have a much easier time of it and I had so many conversations with my daughters about death and dying while I was working on this book and it was their takes were always so much simpler than than we than we turn we we turn them we turn these concepts into such big complicated things Mm. And um, it was refreshing sometimes to hear how simply they could break it down. Had you thought a lot about how you would explain it to them? Or did that that piece about what what doesn't die is love, is that something you had formed for yourself or did it just pop out? I think that's the only thing I do understand about death. <laughs> that's all I had for them. I'm still trying to figure out how to explain death and dying and loss to myself sometimes. You know, I mean, it's how do we wrap our heads around the fact that someone we dearly love is here and then not here anymore? And the only thing I know for certain is that I still love them and that that's real. Um, and so that is kind of the only thing I could give them. I actually used my therapist skills a lot when I was talking to them about death and dying and every time they asked me a hard question that I couldn't answer I would just turn it around on them and say well what do you think (laughs) Um, which is an old therapist trick when we don't know the answer we just ask you what you think (laughs) (laughs) so I did that a lot and their answers were always just kind of delightful and interesting and so much lighter than I tend to go Uh, I uh, last week uh, interviewed Lorraine Hedke, I think she's kind of near, down near where you are, and she and her daughter wrote a children's book about death. Uh, her daughter never met her mother, and mm. but the book is about their relationship, and it's, it's a very delightful little book. Oh, that's cool. That's really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, and um, they apparently did a lot all the way along to cultivate an cultivate that relationship which uh, connects in a way with what you're talking about too that mm-hmm. people are still with us uh, in I our really love of them so. and I think I think sometimes that's hard for us to when we're really grieving really 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 hard I think it's um, challenging for us to to feel that connection and to feel that presence in our lives because we really just feel the absence so much initially and all that pain and sadness and I think as we move through grief, we begin to feel that connection again in new ways and allow ourselves to feel it. 
Um, and I, I do feel like it's very real. And my older daughter has a very strong relationship with my dead mother, whom she's never met. Um, and she, she feels very connected to her and thinks about her a lot and talks about her. And uh, it's interesting. And we were just at lunch, and we were talking about my mom. And I was like, oh, my mom, I just know she loves you. And Vera was like, I know, Mom. Of course she does. <laughs> and uh, it makes me happy. So simple like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we think of yeah. it that way. Uh, an abrupt change of subject is how I used to talk about it. Um, <laughs> you, know, you kind of have to rewrite the relationship if you have known someone in their living. Right. But, um, uh, you know, that's quite a process. But still, obviously, I'm I'm thinking or being with the people I've lost every week when I when I talk on this show. And, and interview delightful people like you. <laughs> um, so we're, we're almost at the end of this segment, but um, I was very interested in the things that really captured you in the process of investigating the book. For instance, um, you saw several mediums or people that... that um, center their work around communicating with people beyond beyond the curtain as it mm-hmm. were and mm-hmm. i was i was uh really i want to talk when we get back about um what sent you in that direction you know i could i could have imagined you maybe studying indigenous cultures or you know all kinds yeah. of different right. places but that seemed a very central part of what you did and um, I'm hoping you can talk about that, uh, first of all, the experience, but also what you think pushed you in that direction. I'm happy to. Um, so we're going we're gonna to take a break now. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Go and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, do all of that modern stuff and sign up for my email list and to find claire bidwell smith go to clairebidwellsmith.com be back soon your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Claire Bidwell-Smith, a grief counselor and author, about her book, After This, When Life is Over, Where Do We Go? And right before the break, Claire, we were about to embark on the whole subject of mediums, of, of which you saw several. Um, you know, I was I was kind of thinking about the different experiences I've had with afterlife through different forms of ceremony and, uh, you know, different... Uh, traditions, traditions of different peoples, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. But I've never been to a medium, which, oh, wow. which, which stood out, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the book because in this that book was especially, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, I wanted, I wanted to hear how what you think pushed you in, uh, not only in that direction, of course, but very deeply in that direction. Yeah. Um. I saw probably over a dozen psychic mediums during the course of writing this book. I even went to a small town in central Florida called Casadega, which is an entire community comprised of psychic mediums. You can literally go door to door and there's a medium at every house. Um, and I, I, I set off on this journey because when I was 21, one of my best friends died and she had, um, she was 21 as well and she had leukemia that she'd been diagnosed with less than a year before, and it was a really hard loss um, in that I was so young and mostly in that she was a peer, so to watch someone in my shoes have to face death was, was really, um, it just, it, it made me think a lot, and it was really painful to watch, but she had a lot of questions at the end, and she, she didn't have any particular religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs, and one afternoon she said to me, Claire, what if... Um, what if there's no one, uh, what, if there, what if I go to some other side and there's no one there to meet me? She had never even lost someone. She was so young. She hadn't even lost a grandparent. And she um, was just scared of, of what was going to happen. And she was also really curious. And I didn't have any answers for her. But I was one of the few people that would talk with her at length about all of this. Having already lost my mom, I had a lot of questions myself. One of the things I did before she died, um, I promised her two things. I promised her that I would name a child after her, <laughs> mm. which I did, I did do. My, my second daughter is named Juliet after Julie. And I also promised her that I would go to see a psychic medium and find out if she was okay. I had picked up a book the summer she was dying. I just picked up this book on a whim by a, a famous psychic medium named John Edward. This was back in early 2000, and he at the time had a TV show on the psychic on the. The, the sci-fi network and he was one of the most well-known psychic mediums in the country he still is and I had been telling Julie about this book and how it worked and how he claimed he could talk to dead people and we had all these questions you know like why would dead people talk to that guy and how does he do it and dead does you know does he, how does, does he hear it does he see them does he, you know we just we were endlessly fascinated by this idea and so I promised her this youthful promise her, on her deathbed literally I will go see John Edward if you die and I will find out if you're okay and Julie and I solemn with, promises. I know the, the demand we keep them. <laughs> I know, and and we came up with these two secret symbols that I've never told another soul. Um, and so we hoped that if I went to see John Edward, 
you know, um, she would come through him with these symbols. So I would know it was her. And, and then Julie died, and um, 10 years went by before I, before I made good on either of my promises. And uh, it was around the same time I'd had my first daughter, and I didn't name her after Julie, and I thought, okay, well, I've, I've, I've now failed <laughs> lots of ways. Oh. I, haven't, I haven't gone to see a medium, and I haven't, I haven't named anybody after my friend Julie, so I, I should at least go see this psychic medium. Um, so I, I ended up going to see John Edward. That was the first medium I saw, and I paid $600. I had to fly to Long Island. I was seeing him in a small group setting um, in a hotel um, in Long Island, and it was like 15 of us. And I made my reservation under a false name. I paid in cash. I was very meticulous about it for a couple of reasons. I was worried about my own credibility. I was working as a grief counselor in hospice at the time, and I didn't know anybody in my field who was seeing psychic mediums or messing around with the paranormal. Um, so I was worried about my my credible standing as a therapist. Um, and then I also, you know, I was curious, and I thought. At that time, my first book was about to come out, and there was so much of me on the Internet that I, I, I worried that if there was any chance that something amazing happened with him, I would worry that he had just Googled me and memorized it or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be really careful about that. Um, so I went to see John Edward, and um, I can actually read a little section from that. Mm, that would be uh, that great. I have, have here. I'll, I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, by the time John Edwards stops in front of me, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out from the release of emotions and grief. I'm overwhelmed by the tragic stories that have come forth. Suicides, long illnesses, horrific car accidents, and my whole body has begun to ache from the tension I'm carrying. Overall, I've been impressed, way more than I expected to be. John Edwards seems genuine to me. He's a little cheesy and his manner is kind of abrupt, but he's immersed in this work, obviously committed to it. He makes a lot of jokes, he tells little side stories, and he spends different amounts of time with each person he reads. It's clear that if he is shamming us, he's not doing it in an obvious way. The details he produces are more specific than not. From time to time, he'll offer something, and the people he's reading will shake their heads. No, that birthday, that initial, that illness, or teapot, or whatever doesn't ring a bell. But he just continues on unfazed until he gets to the thing that makes them sit up in their seat. At one point while he was reading, a woman in the front row, he, at one point while he was reading a woman in the front row, he was interrupted by a spirit trying to reach a gothic woman in the back row. I'm sorry, he said to the woman he'd been working with. This guy just isn't letting me ignore him. He turns to the woman behind me, telling her he thinks the spirit pestering him is for her. She shakes her head, says nothing. Okay, but I really think this guy is for you. Were you engaged or married? He's showing me he's, he's like a partner of yours. She's crying but refuses to look up, to speak. Edward frowns, cocks his head to the side as though he's listening to something. He shakes his head, glancing at the young woman. Okay, I'll come back to this in a bit. He goes back to the woman in the front row, starts to ask her a question, but then stops again, turning back to the gothic woman. This guy won't leave me alone, Edward says to her. James, he's literally yelling the name James at me. She starts sobbing. His name was James, she says. We're all on the edge of our seats at this point. I'm swiveled around in my chair, blatantly staring at her. Mascara is running in rivulets down her cheeks, and she's twisting her hands in her lap. He's showing me a car wreck, Edward continues. Oh, man, like it's really mangled, like really bad. She's shivering, nodding, looking down. And you were there. You were in the car, too. She can't speak, won't look up. He wants you to know that it wasn't your fault. He's telling me that it shouldn't, like, it shouldn't have been you, like you should have died instead. Oh, he's telling me you think it should have been you, like you should have died instead. Um, I, just, I just wanted to be here and listen. 
Edward seems unmoved by her tears. Look, honey, he says, it doesn't matter if you don't want to be read. This guy is here, and he's not going to leave me alone until he gets this message through. Here's the thing, guys, he says, addressing all of us. They don't want us to define our lives by their deaths. If there's one message that comes through more than any other, it's this one. They want you to know that they're still here. They're still connected to you. They want you to go on to live your life. And if they think you're not, well, they're going to keep pestering me or you or anyone who will listen. So that was just like a little moment from my reading with John Edward. And, you know, that night he read me as well and everyone in the room. And I was so actually so surprised by uh, how real it seemed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had gone into it. it. And then I just couldn't believe how how real it was. Um, and, 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 And I came out of it thinking, uh, okay, I, I now have to reconfigure my entire belief system about what's <laughs> real and what's not and, um, and, and death and the beyond and the afterlife. Yeah, one thing that occurred to me, you know, we share uh, our our work. I'm a therapist and you're a therapist. You know, a, a big part of what we're doing is, is kind of intuiting whether someone is being um, real. Mm-hmm. That we're hearing the truth from them of what they're experiencing, yes? Right. And Absolutely. so, you know, I heard that you were doing that in that room and that you couldn't find any way in which it was not real. It, it, exactly. You know, um, a- including the woman with the mascara running down her cheeks. You know, that's very, very hard to fabricate. It is very hard to fabricate. And the, the amount of small details he had, I mean, even if he had looked up every single one of us, and mem- I just said, there's no way he could have memorized all these things or known who was going to be who or how it was going to go. Or I mean, it was just absolutely impossible. Um, his rapid rate of speaking, the things he threw out there. And now I've seen so many mediums that I actually do believe in this. And I, I just, um, I don't particularly like John Edward. I find his approach a little abrasive and abrupt. And he's not as compassionate as some of the other people I've seen. But um, I've, I've seen enough that I, I am a believer. I, can't, I cannot explain it. I still struggle with it. Um, but I, 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 I don't know. There's no other explanation that's possible. Well, that's interesting what you say about him because when I was reading the book, he almost seemed, this is going to be a weird word, but he seemed almost like an appetizer. Mm-hmm. He was, he was just the beginning. <laughs> you know, before, before the main meal of some other people that you um, that you worked with, he just convinced you that it was worth more examination. He did. Was, there was more than you could explain, and you were going to go on and find out what that was about as, as much as you could. Yeah, his reading of me was pretty, was pretty small, but he gave me enough little tidbits where I was, it just kind of snapped me awake, and I was like, wait, whoa, what was that? And I need more. I need to find out more. And, uh, and I, oh, I did. <laughs> uh-huh. um, that's so, uh, you know, I... I, I wouldn't say you had some definitive answer for yourself at the end, but you did share a lot of sort of undeniable um, events. I know that uh, the things that have really convinced me that there's anything other than this are experiences I've had, not mm-hmm. not things I've read or things people have told me, but my actual experiences that I cannot... Uh, fit into a very rational <laughs> framework. Uh, right. and, and it seemed that way for you to me as well. 
Yeah, I very much wanted to experience it for myself. I really, I want, I want to see a ghost. I want to hear a dead person talk to me. <laughs> like I don't no. want to watch somebody else talk to someone who's died. I want, I want to hear it. Um, I think I would be really convinced if that were to happen. But you know, that said, I did have some experiences. Um, I had some deeply spiritual experiences while working on this book. And they were hard. They were hard won. They were really hard won, I will say, because when my mother died when I was 18, I, my response to that was to kind of shut down and be, take a pretty atheist approach to it. Mm-hmm. Just that this, like, very existential, very, you know, this is it. There's nothing more. Because for me to open up to the idea that there was more and that there was a possible connection to her still, it was it just wasn't enough. It was somehow more painful to, to imagine doing that. So I'd spent many years just kind of in a in a very shut down place and doing this work and this research really required me to re examine a lot of my my beliefs and ideas. It required me to break myself open in many ways. And once I finally was able to do that, I had some really valuable and rewarding spiritual experiences that I, I feel have changed me forever mm-hmm. and changed my feelings about death and life and quelled a lot of my anxiety about it. That brings me to something that I was uh, I was hoping you'd talk about, which is the sense of synchronicity in the book. Uh, an example mm-hmm. being when you were on the plane um, interacting with this this family, uh, just enjoying that as I as I understood it, mm-hmm. and then for some reason asked the woman in the family if she knew a rabbi you could talk to, and her husband was a rabbi. He turned out to be a rabbi, and not only that, he turned out to be a rabbi who had lost both of his parents at the same age that I had. So what was most interesting to me was that we were able to have this conversation about grief and grieving and and loss in the afterlife um, from a place of both of us having had the same experience of loss. And that was incredibly valuable to me um, because it was that we had, we'd had such different experiences, this, this man and myself, because he'd had this incredible cultural and religious framework with which to understand his loss. And I had had none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have any kind of strong religious upbringing. I didn't even have... You know, I didn't even have an extended family, really, or a big culture to be part of, and um, to kind of support me through my through my loss. And so we'd had these starkly different experiences of grief, and and his was such a more peaceful, accepting experience. You know, where he his parents died, and and it was incredibly painful, of course, but he also was able to reach a peaceful place so much more quickly than I was, and to just have an understanding of that loss in a way I, it took me years to figure out. When I was reading that section, I was, I have um, many friends who are Jewish and uh, I've participated in, in memorials for people they love. And um, always the, um, you know, when we, when we do things in the world, we will remember you that beautiful poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel they're not expected to leave your, their relationship to the person behind in the way that sometimes uh, I've experienced in my own um, cultural background, that, that it's expected that that person will continue to be woven into mm-hmm. uh, their living. And I wonder if that doesn't make quite a difference. I really think it does. 
like doing doing acts of service in the world that that reflect that person's nature and and um, their desires for the world and those are quite beautiful things and it and it it caused me to reflect a lot on my own parents and who they were and what they strove to to create and to contribute during their lifetime and, and how I might be able to continue that and maybe how are already continuing that um, yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking of that because, of course, your first book has been read by a lot of people, and uh, I don't know another book that captures early loss the way that book does. Uh, you know, loss as a young person, and I, I imagine that that must be valuable to a lot of, a lot of people who've had that experience. Yeah, I hope so. It seems so. Yeah, and so. You know, those conversations with him just made me think about how they are still, my parents are still with me and still in this world in the ways that I am moving through it and the ways I'm contributing and the, the things they taught me and mm-hmm. and how beautiful that is. And did, did you ever have a sense in the course of, of this book of having kind of been led in a certain direction as opposed to, you know, researching the direction and then going that way? Oh, yeah, it was a total rabbit hole that I went down. I just kind of followed experience after experience, and um, I, I just really opened myself up to whatever kind of path would happen. And there were certain things I was curious about, but I was also more curious as to what would be presented to me kind of as, as the journey unfolded. And that was one of the most fun parts of the book, where for five years, I, every time I talked about how I was working on this book, everybody had a story for me or everybody had a person they wanted me to go see. And so I just said, yes, you know, I listened to all the stories. I, you know, considered all these different ideas about the afterlife or ghosts or loss. And then I, I always went to see, you know, the person's psychic or their shaman or their so-and-so. And it made for a really fun, uh, fun journey. And, and surprising, yeah. I, I never quite knew what was next, but uh, it, was, it was great. Yeah. It's time for our second break. Let's come back to that when we come back. And uh, listeners, you can go to my website, www.weatheringgrief.com, or the Good Grief host page to find me. Claire Bidwell-Smith is is at clairebidwellsmith.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Claire Bidwell-Smith about her search for answers about the afterlife, driven, driven by those in her life who've died. And um, I, I want to circle back to kids a little bit. That that um, the way your kids are woven into the book just had so much resonance and meaning for me. So I want to mm-hmm. talk th- about that a little bit more. I was thinking about how, uh, in a way, uh, we couldn't avoid the subject. You know, we knew that death was coming into our home mm-hmm. uh, in a in a, a brief or slightly longer time. Um, and so we felt compelled to have those conversations and not kind of go into it with our children um, not having ever talked about it. Mm-hmm. But for you, um, I suppose you could have sidestepped in some way. Yeah, sure. Um, but it doesn't, it didn't feel in the book as if you ever considered that. I didn't. You know, I mean, I think that after all these years of, of going through all the loss I've been through and then going on to work in hospice and becoming a grief counselor. And I just think that, you know, death is a huge part of life. It is, it's, you know, it's unavoidable. And, and I, I've, I've come to find so much beauty in it and so much beauty in facing it and being able to talk about it and being able to reflect on it and just accept it into our, our journey. And I want my daughters very much to be able to do that. And, I think when my mother died, which was my first real big loss in life, I just, nobody was able to talk to me about it. And Mm -hmm. I was so alone in my grief and my pain and no one I knew knew how to even begin a conversation about it. And so my hope is that as a culture that's shifting, I, I, I really see that in all kinds of ways and I think that's happening. And I think it also starts with us talking to children more about death. They're inevitably going to face it. And the more that, that we can talk about it, the more they'll be prepared when it happens and, and the gentler it will be, you know, in some ways to at least begin the acceptance process. And what I'm aware of, too, is the, uh, the more a resource they are to the people they love. Um, I watch, especially my child who was 14 uh, during that, that death, and how she's the kind of um she's the one that doesn't shrink back when people her age she's now in her mid 30s um have losses you know she's right, right. she's she's able to be present right and um i just have the idea that even if you haven't experienced a big loss if it's not something you have to avoid like you're kids are never going to think they have to avoid it mm-hmm. how much better they're going to do with those experiences absolutely I, that's exactly what I'm thinking you know and um, when my mother was dying it was really hard for me and it was and there wasn't anyone really modeling 
um, how to be present to it. And even my mother didn't know how to be present to the fact that she was dying. You know, Mm. I mean, she was the one modeling it for me and she had no idea how to be present to it and didn't know how to talk to me about it. And that ended up being one of the most painful aspects of the loss was the regret I had and um, the remorse I had not not having spoken to her more about it before she died. Mm. Yeah, and and kind of uh, the long death that comes as a shock. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. You know? yes, she's been sick for five years, but I didn't think she was going to die. I didn't even yes. know what that meant, you know? Yes, um, yes, absolutely. And it was so brutal. Well, and also that's that's to me a very uh, common experience when you have a a death in your life when you're young because your friends are not experiencing that mm-hmm. by by and large you know it might have been hard to find someone who really you know knew what you were going through i guess yeah exactly Definitely. so as a contrast to that would you would you share the uh, part of your book um about your kids and the ashes? I will. Um, it, it follows a little point where I was talking about how my father, after my mother died, I caught my father transferring some of my mother's ashes using one of my aunt's salad serving spoons in the driveway in the mm-hmm. trunk of the car and how appalled I had been at the time. And when I confronted him about it, you know, he was just very like, well, kid, this is, this is the way it is, you know, like mm. we can either make a big deal about this and make it this big, horrible, heavy, scary thing, or you can just help me out. I want to take these ashes up to the beach where we got engaged. And I was like, I remember having this moment of, you know, listening to his two options that he presented me with and, and realizing, you know, that he was right. Um, so in the book, I had a similar experience with my daughter and I'll start here. I'd say... So I decided to take the same attitude with Vera. She had just asked to see my parents' ashes. Um, I pull out the bag of ashes from the closet as she sits at the dining room table watching me eagerly. The large bag is made of dark blue velvet, and I place it on the table before her opening it up. Inside are two heavy plastic bags, one with my mother's ashes and one with my father's. I remove them from the velvet bag and set them down before her. These are their ashes, I say, pointing to each bag. My mother's ashes are dark in color with small fragments that must be bones scattered within the dust. My father's are pale white and finer in texture. I watch Vera inspect the contents. Why are they different colors? Vera asks. I'm not sure, I say, because truthfully I have no idea. Can I touch them? She asks, peering down into the bag. Something in me hesitates at her request, but I recognize it as the same feeling I had when I saw my father with the serving spoon. I think to myself then... Why not? Why not let her touch them? This is life. This is death. Okay, I say, opening the bag of my mother's ashes a bit wider. Vera reaches down in and skims the surface of the ashes with one finger. She lifts it up, studying her fingertip, which is now covered in a fine layer of the powdery fragments. I've been taking the ashes to different places for many years, I tell her. My dad and I took some of my mother's to the beach where they got engaged, and we took some of her ashes to her father's grave in the cemetery. I even took some to Italy, a place she really loved. And when my dad died, I took some of his ashes to the same beach where we took my mother's. Vera's still looking at the ash on her finger. How do you make ash, she asks, uninterested in my description of what I've done with them. Well, you have to burn something with fire, and then it becomes ash. She just stares at me blankly. Here, let me show you, I say. And together we get up from the dining room table and go into the kitchen. I grab a piece of paper from a drawer and a packet of matches. We stand at the kitchen sink and I light the match, gently touching it to the paper. 
We watch the flame consume the paper, and then as little flakes of ash float down into the sink basin. I touch my finger to a piece of ash and hold it up to Vera. See, I say, just like that. Cool, she says, looking at the ash on both our fingers. I study her face, trying to figure out what's going through her mind, worrying that this is all too much. Can we burn something else, she asks then, a mischievous (laughs) look on her face. I just laugh, and something in me relaxes. I've been being so careful, so gentle with this whole experience, coming at it with the very adult perspective I have. But in this moment, I see it all from her point of view. It is cool, I realize. Life and death and transformation. It's all so strange and beautiful and magical and also so simple. Not tonight, sweetie, I say with a smile. But sure, we'll do it again soon. Okay, Mama, she says, just like she always does when she's satisfied with something. That, again, is something that brought uh, a very clear memory I hadn't thought much about in a long time to me, which was that uh, when my partner died, I I got little tiny containers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were kind of uh, thumb-sized, I guess. And I took, t- put some ashes in each one. And I, I, and I gave them to everybody who wanted them. Mm-hmm. And then I started getting photographs from them uh, at beautiful beach locations or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> quite far afield, all over the world, um, actually. I love that. Uh, you know, where people would take their little uh, bit of her, I guess, bit of her body and um, spread spread her, you know, in in some place that had meaning to them, mm-hmm. she she went on a lot of vacations the couple of, <laughs> the couple of years, and and um, my parents were rather horrified by that. It was kind of the reverse, you know. They were they yeah. were not sure they wanted to know anything about that. Right. But my but my friends were delighted. Of course, they they'd been with us for a long time, so they were sort of. <laughs> pre-vetted recipients i love that (laughs) but yeah i i just i just loved having that brought back thank you so much because it's true it's just sort of part of life when Mm -hmm. you relate to it that way isn't it Mm -hmm. it is it really is and um and you know i just feel like my dad was right either we can choose for it to be this really scary sad thing all the time or we can just look at it and be like you know this is pretty cool yeah, uh, when when I'm um, with ashes now, it, it it feels to me more like sand on the beach than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, of course, a similar thing has happened. That kind of breakdown, uh, right? Not always fire, but sometimes fire in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> generally generally starts with fire, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I I think I'm hearing from you a sort of um, a, a sort of question mark mysticism, or you know, there's something more than we know or can prove, but n- maybe not. We maybe we'll never know exactly. Have I have I uh, read your book correctly on that? Yeah, I didn't. I did not find the answer. I do not know definitively what happens when we die. I believe that no one knows. Um, I. I came, I went into the book not believing in another side. I came out of it believing that there is 
something there's there's something beyond our our physical bodies after death, and um, I do firmly believe that I can't explain all the things that happened that led me to that conclusion. Um, but I do believe that there's much more than we realize, much more than we think. I believe that we're much more connected to each other than we realize. And what I found most importantly during this journey was a sense of connection to those whom I'd lost. I went into it not feeling connected to them anymore. I'd lost my mother, my father, one of my best friends. Um, I lost another best friend while I was writing the book. And I went into those went into writing the book not feeling any sense of connection to them after since they had died and coming out of it completely different. I, I've, I was on a run this morning and I was saw myself talking to my mother in my head and very, very feeling very connected to that. And, and it suddenly struck me what a difference that was from myself five years ago. And mm. um, I don't know, you know, like I can't prove that she can hear me or that she is somewhere else, but you know what? I feel a lot better being able to talk with her and feeling free to talk with her than I did when I didn't allow myself to do that. And that's what's really valuable to me. And so in some way, the book led you back to the people whose loss led you to write it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, very much. Mm. And I came out of it with a real sense of much more peace about when my daughters and I have to say goodbye to each other. You know, inevitably we will um, at some point. We will lose each other, and uh, I, I had so much anxiety about that for, for a long time, and I don't anymore. I, I feel like I will always be connected to them in, in ways that I can't quite explain, and I feel like I've done a pretty good job of making them feel that way as well. Well, that's the thing. If you believe it, that's what you're communicating to them, and that's, that's what will be in their memory bank, won't it? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the fact that that's an indelible... Um, imprint on us, right. our our love for each other. Right, exactly. Well, I think that I'm going to have to go to a psychic medium. I think sometimes. you do. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not all great. I saw plenty that were not at all good. Um, they were. I didn't see anyone that was bad, but I saw some that just like weren't great, and I just didn't. You know. So, um, but there are some amazing ones out there, and I think you could have some really cool experiences. Uh, I, I'm just going to have to, you know, email you <laughs> later for a recommendation. Yep. <laughs> I've got some stuff for you. <laughs> oh, Claire, I, I just, uh, I'm so happy that you write as well as do workshops. I know you're having a workshop uh, coming up. Can you tell people about it before we say goodbye? Yeah, I have an unusual one coming up in January of next year. It's myself and a psychic medium friend of mine. Um, her name is Medium Floor. She uh, shows up in my book. She and I are doing a grief retreat together in Ojai for three days in January. And there's more information on my website about that. Fantastic. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Okay. Next week. Next week, Melinda Richardson of Emerging Beyond will join me to talk about the loss of her child and the organization she founded to support others through their grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.